Hello, everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I am here with my co-host. Who? Who am I? Who? Where? What day is it? I don't. I don't know <laughs> I don't where know. I am. It's yeah. It's Dr. Scott. I think. Yeah. As long as you know your name, you don't need to know what right. day it is. <laughs> I'm kind of depersonalizing right now. Right. Um, I'm going to apologize off the bat because with our state being on fire, my chest is on fire. My eyes and my nose yeah, are just like absolutely so irritated. So I'm sorry if there's coughing or sniffling or all of that today during our episode. Yeah. Like, thank God for my husband, Dan, to remind me because the other like two days ago, I mean, it's really super, I mean, it's horrific out here. The, the amount of damage that's being done on the West Coast with fires is just awful. And and the fact that it's become a new norm is really bad, but yep. you know it is what it is. And I was got a great night's sleep the other night, and I wake up and it's you know four thirty in the morning, and I'm having my coffee, and I'm like, God, I feel like crap. Oh no, I'm coming down with something, and I'm like dragging. Like, should I call in sick? Should I take something? And then Dan gets up and he goes, "It's your allergies. You always forget you have allergies." I'm like, Oh right, all this crap is in the air. Yeah, it's, so, it's pretty awful. I got called out last night and um on the way I was probably got home about one o'clock in the morning and it was really thick and really gross and just to like run from my car to the house was all I could do because it even though the fires aren't super close, I'm about, you know, a couple cities over, I guess, is the best way to explain it. It's just you can't see anything today. It's just really smoke is everywhere the sunsets are really creepy like they all weekend i mean well i was off on my regular day office on every other thursday and sitting here on thursday all day with just this yellow orange tinge in the air everywhere it was like watching a movie about being on mars like how they always do the yeah. atmosphere on mars it was very it's like weird and I know down here is like nothing compared to what it's like up in the Bay Area right now. Oh, but it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. like we're stuck on some gross uh, Instagram filter that nobody ever uses. Yeah. <laughs> that makes everything look disgusting. <laughs> it's definitely not Valencia. <laughs> no. They should just not. call it Palmdale. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> the Get Palmdale filter. But look, you know, having said that, I also want to acknowledge that um, the West Coast is not the only place having extremely difficult times. The hurricanes moving into uh, to through Florida and Louisiana, Mississippi, it is and Texas. It's um it's causing incredible wreckage there. So you know, keep which we're not hearing about. We're, we're, yeah, for some reason that's not getting that's not getting as much recognition as it should. I don't know what that's about. You know, not conspiracy theory. I think just whatever. You know. California or the the West Coast is not is not the only ones hurting. You know the, yeah. the south south either southeastern seaboard is um, really having a rough time as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, so today we're kind of going back to classic. I don't know, true crime terribleness <laughs> with our topic. Sure, let's just get your come on, folks. Let's get your minds off the wildfires, uh, global warming, and digging climate in. change. Yeah. So exactly. we're going to talk about female sexual homicide today. Yeah. Um, so I think we need to lay a little bit of groundwork. Scott and I were talking before we got on to record how many rabbit holes you can go down and there could be a ton of foundation laid for this. Um, but we're just going to sort of dip our toe into a little bit to give you 
some foundation for what we will be talking about today and some of the cases we'll be talking about, but we would be remiss if we didn't. Um, so I'm just going to sort of start with sexual homicide in general. Well, let me, let me jump in before you start, because you've got your bullet points in a row. I also wanted to kind of parse out a little bit of what you, uh, started with is that some of the cases that we will be used to represent today, we've already talked about before in other episodes in some ways, but we're drilling down from true crime into, homicide, the sexual homicide into what role do women play in what particular situation and how does that happen? And is it, is it a thing? So, you know, because there, you know, you and I were just talking about that. There's like, there's not like this easily found research on this particular topic, but you have to really dig deep and go back years looking at the material. Yeah, you do. Um, And I think it's going to echo a lot of what we've said when we've talked about just female sexual offenders before. And that, that is what we want you to think about. You know, when you're listening to all of this, I'm going to sort of like pose a question at the end of today about what it is we're really talking about. But, you know, this is kind of the investigative piece that you get to do when you are researching or studying human behavior or sexual behavior or criminal behavior is, okay, I I kind of have all these chunks and pieces, but what does it mean? What do I do with it? What similarities am I seeing between comparing these two groups? What differences are there? And it's neat. Like I look at this stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, research idea, dissertation idea. So if you're a student right now and you're listening, jot down a couple of these ideas we're probably going to generate for you. Yeah, seriously, this, these, this, there's some great ideas here. And I think that I would totally agree with you in that what you just said about if we dive down deep into this, one of the things that starts to emerge is you realize that there's a lot of sort of the end result of the crimes looking the same, but the the characterological drives involved in how they got there could be completely different. The motivations could be completely different depending on the circumstance and the environment and the individuals involved. So it's, that's fascinating as well. Yeah. So there's really not a legal definition, if you will, of sexual homicide. A lot of times the focus of the prosecution in a murder that involves some sort of sexual element is obviously going to be the murder. I mean, that's like the big most serious charge that's there. And they're going to go after that. If there can be something, you know, charges put on top of that with a sexual element to it, that tends to be secondary. Um, But there is really nothing alone in most countries um, in the, that's codified in the penal code or, you know, whatever the, the country uses for referencing their different crimes and elements of crimes that is specific to sexual homicide. So, you know, when when you're looking at these types of crimes, where you're going to get definitions is probably going to be from people who are looking at these cases, which are probably researchers, psychologists, criminologists. But I like to think, you know, sort of through the lens of the investigation, if an investigator is looking at a crime, how are they going to get the information or think that it's sexual? And it's usually going to be from two places. It's either going to be from statements of the offender because the victim can't say what was done to them before or after or during. Uh, and it's going to be from crime scene evidence. So when we're talking about these studies and individuals are gathering data, 
think of it's either coming from interviews and statements of these offenders and what they're admitting to or not, um, and then physical evidence that we see at the scene. Um, so there are several different definitions out there. Uh, I have pulled studies mainly from Hong Kong because there's one doctor who has, of all of the studies on female sexual homicide offenders, he has, there's like six or seven studies total, and he's done five of those. <laughs> um, and and are, then there's a, are those normed on that population, or is he looking at sort yeah. of worldwide phenomenon? Um, he looked at uh, data from here in the United States, from the Unifying Crime Report. Um, but that's also another uh, tricky piece to it is how is the statistic, for lack of a better term, being coded when we are doing things like entering crimes into the Uniform Crime Report system. So that's going to depend on basically each investigator around the country, how they're they're coding this when they when and if they put these crimes into the sort of national database when they report can you, crimes. Can you describe that a little bit more about what that database consists of or how that is put together, who has access to it? So usually it's uh, detectives from each jurisdiction. So as small as, you know, the little 60 officer department that I worked for, um, you know, maybe at our department, I don't know exactly how it went down, but I'm guessing like, the sergeant or lieutenant of the detective bureau would be responsible for it. And it's major crimes, um, both against persons, against property. So it could be burglary, different categories of crimes could be burglary, rape, murder. Um, And then essentially they put in the data for the year and they put in information about the crime, um, information about the perpetrator, information about the victim. And so it is a big giant database. It's laborious and nobody really wants to do it. And it's actually not, I don't think it's required. It actually, the UCR, the Uniform Crime Report might be required. I think it's NCIS that is not required. Um, so it just, it's, it gathers information and um, it's how the FBI sort of reports each year about crime trends. Okay. But it's uh the definitions that we're getting from psychology and research is interesting. I like to sort of go back to the the classic crime classification manual by John Douglas and Robert Ressler and Alan and Ann Burgess. Um there's is actually more like a definition paragraph, but I'm just going to read that for you guys because I actually kind of like it the best, but we'll talk about Um, some others. So they define sexual homicide as, quote, sexual homicide involves a sexual element or activity as the basis for the sequence of event, sequence of acts leading to death. Performance and meaning of the sexual element vary with the offender. The act may range from actual rape involving penetration, either before or after death, to a symbolic sexual assault, such as inserting of foreign objects into a victim's bodies or offices. The motivational model of, so that's the end of the definition. And then they have like sort of this idea, which is like the motivational model of sexual murder. They're saying essentially deviant sexual arousal, deviant sexual fantasies and acts of sexual murder are essentially just inadequate coping skills for these individuals that when they're faced with a stressor, this is how they act out. 
Now, obviously, that's developed over a long period of time with a lot of things that we sort of think that make up somebody who could um, be capable of this. And but it's also, to really drill it down, yeah, that's what and, they're saying it is. And, and it's not that by using that particular definition, we're not minimizing it all. We're just like really kind of stripping all emotion out of it to look at what may have been a very predominant factor in yes. the development of this person's personality or characteristics that led them to this. So, you know, sometimes right. we talk about some really gross things and kind of toss it off as if, oh, it's just this. And it's really, no, it just, it, you know, we're not making excuses for it by any means, but that's just mm-hmm. kind of an understanding of how you get there. And so we know that they gathered their data uh, qualitatively from, um, you know, again, like, their interviews, the sort of Mindhunter-based interviews from uh, murderers and sexual homicide perpetrators in prison. And again, we're just talking in general. We're not talking about women here. So we know that a lot of this is is based on men, but that's one way, right, to get information about it. So other researchers who have looked into this describe sexual homicide as homicide that's committed where there's been sexual behavior and or arousal before, during, or after the killing. I have a problem with that because, you know, I think there could be a sexual encounter between a couple and then, you know, something triggers them and one murders the other. And maybe it doesn't have to do with the sex that they just had. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point, how that could be confusing, especially if somebody was trying to break that down and put it into a national database, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I could see a detective like kind of chewing on his pen, like, eh, do I put yes or no on this one? Like, does it fit into that? And then yeah, yeah. It, it's just, it's, it's really problematic. Um, I also think it, sometimes you find definitions of sexual homicide where they put a lot of weight on the relationship between the victim and the perpetrator. You know, are they in a sexual relationship? Are they not? You know, were they currently engaged in sexual activity and, or had they in the past, you know, just because people had a romantic sexual relationship doesn't mean necessarily the crime is sexually motivated. And I, you know, it goes back to what we talk about with sex offenders a lot. I need to know if deviant sexual fantasies, or there's some sort of sexual motivation to the crime, because otherwise it's not really a sex crime that needs to be treated that way because what do I do with that person in treatment if if there's no intent or deviant piece to it just because it happens to follow maybe a sexual activity or there's like when we talked about what was it on our last get vocal and we talked about juvenile sex offenders and if two kids are 17 years old and one turns 18 and now they're all of a sudden a statutory rapist that's not deviant so you know, that's not the intent of the crime there. Um, so it is tricky in yeah, when you're yeah. looking at this. Um, you know, it you're also the typologies that we've all heard, you know, is it sexual sadism? Is it a lust murderer? You know, these are all very fancy terms that everybody has a definition for. Right. Um, and that that's the thing, you know, if it's not put down as a diagnosis or as um, defined legally in the crim- in the, the legal world or criminal world, then we're all just kind of flying by the seat of our pants and you and right. I can do a study and come up with our definition. Exactly. So that's one of the reasons we have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is so that if I need to communicate 
with a clinician across the city, across the county, across the country, across the world, we can all be on the same page about what we're talking about. Like, oh, look, it's meeting this criteria. But when you come up, I mean, like Psychology Today has really has a really great article that's sort of an overview on an aspect of this, and they call it lust murderers right. uh, or lust killings. And I I like where that author is going with it. But I also realize that like nobody's actually put any time towards quantifying this. Hint, anybody out there writing your dissertation, this would be a great idea. You know, if you quantify it and sort of nail down what that definition is, then everybody has to sort of get behind it. But right, like you were saying, it's everybody's going to have a different definition of what that particular term means. Yeah. Or, you know, the alternative, like um, what was done with defining serial killer was having a big um, forum or symposium where you have experts in the field get together over days and sort of hash out the research and talk about what definitions could be and sort of create one with a consensus. You know, that's a way to do it. So again, sort of qualitatively um, with people coming together and agreeing what it should be. And then they ended up coming up with a very, you know, kind of vague uh, definition for serial killer, which is fine because then you can sort of, you know, plug people in there and then like drill down from there. But it, it's just, it's really interesting how this, this stuff works. I mean, sexual homicide by any perpetrator is very rare. I mean, it's about one to 4%. (laughs) I know one to 4% of homicides. Um, and I think I, I, just before we hopped on, I came across a study from Reed Malloy from 2000, where he looked at them in the United States between like, I don't know, uh, maybe a 10-year span in the 90s, and it was 0.09% or 0.9%. Um, so almost 1% were sexual homicides. And so when we kind of start thinking along the line to females, the one study that I was able to find that looked at, they were actually looking at female sexual homicides um, in a study sort of looped in with juvies or juveniles, but they found that of of sexual homicides, which, okay, we just stated is very rare, one to 4%, 5% of those are committed by females. Right. So. That's- it, it is very small rare. <laughs> I was telling my husband what we were, what topic we we're talking about today, and he's like, "Well, that's not very common, right?" I'm like, and I gave him these numbers. He goes, "Oh, well, that's that's ultra rare." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's like the, uh, you know, super glittery, ultra rare LOL doll that your kid finds in a blind bag, and they're super excited because the little code on it says ultra rare, which <laughs> that then if, you're stabs parent, you. <laughs> if you're a parent and you buy all this crap with not even knowing what's inside of it and your kid like loves it when the ultra rare one pops up, then you know what I mean? But well, I, I think that's interesting. And just to tie it back to what you were saying earlier is like that ultra rare can be like an arbitrary term that's put on a, on something, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of what we talked about before the idea negotiations, of, right. We talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, girl. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, sort of watching Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds has got to generate um, storylines. So they would make it seem like there's a sexual homicide killer on every corner. Right. And like, let's keep it interesting. Let's make them a lot of them, make them women. And it's, you know, that just doesn't bear out. That's what entertainment is doing, though. So the 
problem here is with the low frequency of these types of crimes means there's less to study. There's less research out there. Um, like I said, there are six studies out there on female sexual homicide offenders and five of them are done by the same guy, which great, you know, um, I would love to see him write a book on what he's found so far, but you know, there's, when there's such little research, you're going to start in a very basic way. And that's basically what is out there already. Right. So I think where you're going with this also is about sort of the is really what our current perception is of this population and do we actually have the right pair of glasses on to look at it because if it's a relatively new area of of study then what have we been missing for decades and you know throughout history not look we've we've certainly got a lot of um uh, cases of female killers and that may fit this criteria. But if you haven't been looking in that particular way for a long time, then we may have to go back and start re-examining some True. of these cases historically. I mean, that would be a great way to look at it as well. Because again, a lot of this falls to the wayside because we look at women different in our culture across the world. And we have historically and um, that's something we're going to also kind of be exploring today as well is like, yeah, you can't just let cultural assumptions guide your judgments like much as when we gave when we talked about Lizzie Borden, right? you know, sort of the way exactly. they described her in the courtroom and her presentation and stuff. It's like, no, there there's just the same possibility of women being psychopaths as men. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the low frequency of these types of crimes, one lends to... Uh, not being not having access to as much data but also what you're saying like we there there are barriers to that just built into the gender roles and the um double standards in our criminal justice system that we talked about a lot when we did our episode with getting off about Mary Kay Letourneau and female sex offenders um which we did a whole episode on it, so we don't want to <laughs> rehash that. Please go back and and listen to those. Um, but it, it's just problematic. And so, um, you know, I think I really am just trying to hit home and have the caveat of like, look, everything we're talking about today is as good as we know it as of today. And something, like you said, maybe if we start looking more historically or if we're able to dig a little deeper into the actual behavior in these crimes that will have new information or right. conflicting information. So if we were to look at it, like it, certainly for the purposes of today's episode, if we were to look at it as an issue of um, where does there, is there a Venn diagram overlap or where is there a nexus of the, of the presence of sexual sadism in female perpetrators. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that really kind of narrows it down even further. And I love what um, former FBI profiler, Greg McCrary talks about some female serial killers are not just sexually aggressive, but also sadistic. And he says the ultimate, <clears throat> excuse me. He says the ultimate fantasy of a sexual sadist is to totally possess another person, both physically and psychologically. So in that description, if we're talking about women who may feel that they, you know, on some level, either consciously or unconsciously, that they're disempowered, this is certainly a way of really claiming their ground. A lot, which is really came out a lot when Eileen Wernos was interviewed, 
right. know, about her, 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 her horrific history of abuse and uh, by her parents and alienation by her, her, um, and community and environment. Mm-hmm. And she acted out and she was very vocal about like, yeah, you, what is it? She looks at the camera and says, you made me, you know, yep. I'm, I'm here because you made me. Yeah. That's pretty, that's very powerful. And we're just, we don't expect that. Like it's so shocking because it's coming from a woman, right? Like it, even no. we just don't associate women with violent or sexually motivated crimes. Um, and so when we do have these small studies and few studies about them, the majority of them are really going to be, like I said, starting very basic and comparing them to other groups that we do have more information about. So um, when I talk later about some of these studies, it's going to be, okay, we have to compare this group of female sexual homicide offenders to female murders where there wasn't a sexual element, or we have to compare them to male sexual homicide offenders, because those are the ones where there's more research. And it, that that I feel like our last couple episodes have been so like, picking apart and explaining like how research and it's done and the things you have to think about. But um, I love sort of, you know, going behind the curtain with people or behind the couch with people (laughs) about that um, to see how, how difficult it is and tedious it is. You know, you pick up these obscure little studies on things with titles that you're just like, what, why would they drill down on something so specific but you can and you should. Absolutely. Cool. And we need it. And, you, and somebody 10 years from now is going to need it. I mean, and even in those categories that you talked about, you looking at purely in sexual homicide and trying to divvy those out, you also look at the the scant research we have on female child sex offenders. Right. I mean, that's another further. Yep. Oh, that, so it's uh, smaller. It's even smaller segment. as well. And so, no, maybe there weren't homicides involved in those cases. But again, the way we perceive them and in many cases are blind to them is, is problematic. I mean, if we have a one dimensional portrayal of a woman as a harmless victim, then this keeps us seeing women as a whole as complex beings that are able to wield power, even in really violent and misguided ways. And so then we always assume that men are always a perpetrator and they're never, that they are never victims. And so the idea that men are never victims reinforces this really unhealthy um, imbalance between men and female perpetrators. So we, we um, perpetrate men as sort of failures if they're victims in this way. And we refuse to see women as violent in this way. Right. And then so you get underreporting. You get women not facing uh, as tough of sentences, all all sorts of things like that. So did you want to talk about Larissa Christensen? Just a little bit. So Larissa Christensen, um, there's a really great, I'm going to put this article up because I thought it was fantastic. And it's a little aside from what we're doing because it's mainly about female child sexual offenders and how they're looked at in the media. And Larissa Christensen really got some great data out of Australia, and she was able to sort of pull apart the ideas that the public just really does not want to see women in that light. I mean, it's just very rare, unless it becomes political and a prosecuting attorney wants to really portray someone as a monster. But generally, what Christensen found was that female offenders were termed as lonely, as vulnerable, as heartbroken, 
or depressed. And what they really found was that they just were much more reluctant to view women perpetrators as engaging in predation or predatory behaviors. So, so these sort of docile... Um, exactly. Just like you think of this mousy, sad woman that's lonely and acted out instead of someone who's aggressive or violent. Right. I, it makes me think of um, one of the movies Dan worked on was Species. Do you remember the horror movie oh, Species? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a really great line in Species where Marg Helgenberger is asking um, the scientist who who received all the alien um, messaging in order to sort of create this DNA to have to have this alien. You know, we got this message from outer space. Hey, here's how you build your alien. And they had the choice to whether to make it male or female. And he said, well, why did you choose female? And he goes, well, we thought she would be more docile. And Mark Helgenberg goes, <laughs> rolls her eyes and goes, wow, what do you know about women? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I that's love pretty that. cool. <laughs> Hello, this is Lance from the Crawl Space Media Network. I really hope you're enjoying one of our fine programs right now. While I have your ear, I want to tell you about another quality show on the network. It's called Pi Rational Stories, and it's our first fictional podcast. There is a space between reality and fantasy, between rational and irrational. In this space, there are stories, stories of obsession and the dark side of human nature, of love and despair, and glimmers of hope. These are anthology-style stories narrated by the finest voices in the industry and written in a dark corner of the universe. So if you like well-told tales, listen and subscribe to Pi Rational Stories. That's P-I underscore Rational Stories on Spotify, Apple, or your preferred listening app. And now... Back to the program. Um, so when we just quickly, like female non-sexual homicide, so female murders, essentially, where there's not a, a homicidal or there's not a sexual element there, they usually murder their romantic partners and or their co-perpetrator. Not usually. I don't want to say that. They can be co-perpetrators with men or other women where they're usually in like a secondary role if they're co-perpetrators. So I just want to, again, like that could be its own separate episode, of course. And maybe we will just talk about female homicide offenders at some point. Yeah. Um, but let, let's get into the research of female sexual homicide offenders. Um, so I have mentioned Dr. Chan. He is a criminologist out of Hong Kong, and he has done the most research. A lot of his studies... Um, basically worked with a database out of the United States from 1976 to 2007. And there were 204 female sexual homicide offenders that he was able to uh, gather data on. But again, this is just scratching the surface. So he, you know, he's getting this information and it's biographical data. Um, so that's, I think that's a great place to start. I think there's a lot of places to go, um, but it's really interesting to just look at who these women are and, and, you know, if there's anything interesting or significant about the, the women that are engaging in this behavior. So he found that the, these women, these perpetrators are actually just as likely to be white as non-white. So there wasn't really a racial disparity disparity, but they um, tend to kill intraracially, so within their own race. 
the mean age that he found was 27 and the majority of the victims were known to the offender. So that makes sense. I think we would all probably guess that to be true because uh, that's just It true. seems it's pretty standard, right, across yeah, the board with these exactly. kind of crimes. Exactly. He did one or two of his entire studies was looking at the weapons that were used. And I just think it's an interesting factoid to kind of pull out the the takeaway from those studies is that women use less physically demanding weapons. So they're using firearms, they're using sharp objects instead of picking up something that you would have to repeatedly like beat someone over the head with like a blunt object where men tend to use their hands for strangulation or blunt objects to um, beat somebody with. So women are doing something that's um, quite fatal and doesn't take as much effort and strength, which makes sense. Well, I mean, just physiology, not certainly not all women. I mean, they're I, there's some some women at my gym that their upper body, body strength where they could snap me like a chicken bone. But, you have some Eileen you know, Warnoses at your gym. <laughs> there are definitely some that that look like supermodels. It's kind of this is like a LA is like a genetic experiment as far as <laughs> Amazon I'm women. Seriously, just but yeah, I mean it makes sense that if they are, I mean just unconsciously if they're aware they're not going to be able to do as much damage using a blunt force object, then they're right. going to go for something that's more lethal, quicker, quick, and more expedient. Yes, exactly. Um, And it was subsequent studies that I found said that when weapons were used, that it was um, sort of improvised at the scene. It's not something they necessarily like brought with them. To me, that says there's not a whole lot of planning, but there's also weapons at the location where this is going down. So maybe it's the person they killed, maybe the gun or the knife belonged to that person. They're not bringing their own weapons with them is like pre-planning is what that is sort of saying to me. So I just think it's interesting to kind of look at like a very like narrow piece of just how they use their weapons. Women can be more (laughs) improvisational, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I think like, okay, where can I get a knife, you know, a weapon that would be very lethal? Okay. Every kitchen, if this, and most of these are taking place indoors, um, just go into the kitchen and grabbing a knife. This could be pretty fatal. So I'm terrified of, I never carry a knife on me because I'm like, someone will take that thing away from me and know how to use it. And I won't. Like even when I work patrol, I only used one to like, if I had to cut through something, Yeah, never as a defense mechanism. There's a, there's some, totally buff guy online that's just a he's like a badass sort of self-defense you know weapons expert mm-hmm. and he has um some pretty funny videos online i can't remember what his name is but he's got one called how to defend yourself in a knife fight and there's this whole setup and he's like okay so and he's got you know a person with him acting and the guy's got a rubber knife and so he goes, now what you see is this person's gotten within X amount of feet of me and he's pulled out the knife and this is how you handle it. And then he just <laughs> turns and runs. Perfect. And that was it. He's like, you, you cannot defend, if you're unarmed, you cannot defend yourself against a knife. It's incredibly dangerous. It's why England, you know, which has very stringent anti-gun laws, which are pretty great, but mm-hmm. the, the level and number of knife attacks in England is Interesting. So that's the go-to. Yeah, it's and they're fatal. You know, it's just like how, sure. how, how are you gonna how are you gonna um, have laws that protect against that? That's gonna be very difficult to do. Ugh. 
and I just don't want to be cut or stabbed. Yeah. But a way to, uh, way to, I don't uh, not be a good way to go. I know. Even if I don't die, like it just sounds awful. So yeah. I never carry a knife. <laughs> That'll be taken away from me in a hot second. Um, let's see. So there, there was a study that was out of Europe, a very small sample. They looked at crimes actually between 1990 and 2015, which is a pretty good range of time. Um, and they were only able to find seven female perpetrated homicides. And so what they did is they compared some elements to a group of non-sexual female homicides just to see what are the differences here. Um, So they found that the majority had a male accomplice, which seemed to really be the key variable because that significantly was um, different from the non-sexual homicides, the the other group that they compared these women to. Um, So perhaps, you know, I thought maybe this is making them more similar to female sex offenders who don't commit murder to where they, there's often a male accomplice involved. So that it's just interesting to sort of look at, like, once you drop that variable of a man or a a co-defendant that's male in there, that women are engaging in these horrific acts. It is. That's fascinating. And there's, and I want to take it even further, or I wish that somebody would look at this more closely, which is, okay, if, if we're looking at this very small population and this very small phenomenon, and it's also, we're looking specifically at crimes that involve duos. So it's male, female, or female, female. Right. We immediately just culturally unconscious acceptors of patriarchy, we -hmm. immediately think that the male is going to be the dominant personality that's going to be driving these crimes. And that's not always true. And in a lot of these interviews, they'll get the male psychopaths in prison separate. And they're like, man, you don't even know. Yeah, I did it. I, I was part of it you need to go look at my partner because she's the real whack she job. crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know, now is, is that a defense? I'm sure a lot of that's a defense, but I think also when some, when a lot, it's several of these interviews and we'll talk about one of them later. That's a very famous one from England is this guy is going to be in for like, he's never getting out. He's, they don't have the death penalty. He's got nothing left to lose. He's got nothing to gain. Exactly. By by twisting the truth of this. And this is one that actually became a really huge case in England. But yes. We'll, we'll talk about that. Horrific. Um, so just a little bit more from the study from Europe. Um, they found majority of the perpetrators and victims were white. Now, this was out of Scotland. So I think that's geographically dependent, um, most likely. The age range for the majority of these women was between 31 and 45. And their victims were usually in like an age range above them. So older victims, so mid 40s and above. They found that both the victims and the perpetrators predominantly did not have jobs. So, you know, you just think of it and you're like, okay, painting a picture here. Are these two people? um, and, And all of the victims were known to these perpetrators. So there were no strangers. Um, But a lot of them were family members and not intimate partners. But they, again, they're not describing sort of the, the behavior that's happening. They're just giving me these raw, raw numbers and data that I'm like, right. And what, what is the sexual element here? If it's not an intimate partner. And then to think about, I mean, 
I had not heard that stat before about employment, but immediately, mm-hmm. and I'm not, look, I'm just, I'm completely talking on my ass here. But the first thing that comes up for me when you give me an example like that is being employed forces you to have some sort of mastery on some level of interpersonal skills. Yeah. Like you, you have to, you can still, you can be the weirdo in the, in the, on the floor at work, but you still have to be able to manage and, and get along to an extent. And if you take that away, if you take away that structure, then, or that sort of, that acts like as a emotional psychic container of a sort, Sure. And someone has a predilection or maybe sort of underlying mental health issues that's going to pull them towards violence, then that's not a good combination. Yeah, I, I think it's really, you know, it, it sort of looks mildly interesting on the surface. But when you go back to looking at like the violence risk assessment that we do and sex offender risk assessment right. that we do, right. we always look at empl- employment because it's a marker of stability, which right. is exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, I think just... um of, of the ability to have something stable and consistent in your life. And then socially, like you were sort of pointing out. Um, so I, I, I believe that it's more important than not. And especially all of them were unemployed in this, this study. I mean, again, we're only talking about seven offenders. I get it, but um, it, it was significantly different from com- when they compared it to the non-sexual female homicide offenders. Right. So it, you know, all of this is interesting, but to me, I'm like, oh my God, give me more about the psychopathology. Mm -hmm. I need more about the sexual aspects and the behavior at the crime scene. And so, you know, here's the uh, dissertation idea alert. Like if someone can go in and sort of thematically start looking at the crime scenes and at the behavior Um, and that is, you know, can be pulled from police reports, but it might be having to go out and talk to these perpetrators as well. So I, you know, I'm just, I I think we have so much more to understand in the bare bones, um, about the motivations behind these homicides. And I know that's what, you know, our listeners are probably wanting as well is like, okay, well, why, why would women engage in a, um, a murder and have a sexual element to it. And and we're going to talk about some sort of one-off cases, but um, just in the research, we just don't have that yet. We just don't have it enough yet. We can conjecture. We can conjecture on what we have um, statistically now, but it's not enough. Yes. We are all unresolved right now on this topic. (laughs) All right. Um, So I am going to talk about the case of Melissa Huckabee. I think this, we don't often do trigger warnings, but this does involve the death of a child as well as the sexual assault of a child. So um, we, I'm going to leave it pretty vague, but I think there's still some interesting elements here because there's also some elements we don't have. And so again, it's sort of filling in those blanks of what we were just talking about of wanting to know more about psychological issues and about behavior and motivations. And I think this is one that gives us a decent amount. And it also feels like it is very rare. I know when it happened, this happened in 2009 in Tracy, California, which is central California-ish. Or is it Northern California? I don't know. Everything above Ventura to me is like Northern California. I forget we have a central. Uh, Isn't there a prison in Tracy? 
Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. I just remember hearing this on the news, and this was around the time you and I were wrapping up internship, actually, because it happened in April of 2009. So, you know, our minds were all about just sex offender behavior. Um, So in a trailer park in Tracy, California, lived uh, Melissa, who was 28 years old at the time. She lived there with her grandparents and her five-year-old daughter. And then there was another family with a seven-year-old daughter. Her name was Sandra Cantu, and she lived with her parents in the same trailer park. She would actually play with Melissa's daughter every once in a while. They were playmates. Melissa also at some point had taught Sunday school at her grandfather's church. He was the pastor there. And Sandra, the victim in this case, had been a part of her Sunday school class from time to time. So we have a, you know, close knit community as far as residents as, and, you know, church going community as well here. So if you don't know the details of this, you can imagine just what a big deal this was aside from it being a female offender. Um, So on March 27th, 2009, Sandra goes missing. She's a seven year old. And a couple of weeks later, her body is found stuffed in a suitcase at an irrigation pond fairly close to um, the residence. Um, and then Huckabee is eventually arrested. So this is this is sort of the sequence of events. Um, and they really tied this together with a lot of surveillance footage and witness statements. But essentially on this, this day, March 27th, Sandra is seeing sort of, you know, skipping through the trailer park, heading towards home. That one, and was then, that CCTV? That was security cam footage, wasn't it? It was from inside the trailer park. So okay. I don't know if it was someone's personal like on their trailer or if the park had it up there. Um, But she's skipping towards home. And then you see her sort of stop dead in her tracks. Like something catches her attention near Melissa Huckabee's residence. And then she sort of walks out of sight. And that's essentially the last time she's seen. Eight minutes later, the, the video then shows Huckabee driving her SUV out of the mobile home park and turning in the direction of her grandfather's church. So, I mean, eight minutes. Is Sandra already dead? Is she in the car just as a passenger? Like that's, you know, it, it, there's not a whole lot of information, but it's it's very curious. Mm-hmm. Um, around And, and what stopped her also? Like that's curious to me. Like, so we see her stop. Does that mean that Melissa was calling her? Right. Like, hey, come over here. I've got something for you or I want to ask you something. Probably. And of course, she would trust her because she plays with her daughter. Yeah. Oh, totally. And she was her Sunday school teacher. Right. Why wouldn't she? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So around the time Huckabee is leaving the trailer park, she puts in a phone call to the trailer park manager reporting a black suitcase being stolen in front of her trailer. So... You have, if if Sandra is not dead in these eight minutes, which I, you know, kind of doubt that she is, you have a lot of pre-planning here. She's yeah. already reporting her suitcase stolen. Um, so I, it's just, it, I don't know. There's a lot of questions there for me. Um, but so more surveillance tape shows 
Huckabee driving away from the church and then returning 30 minutes later. Um, So that's a separate camera system. There's some witnesses that saw Huckabee and her SUV at the irrigation pond where Sandra's body was found within that 30-minute window. Um, And then the day after Sandra is reported missing, Huckabee calls authorities and says she found this handwritten note in the trailer park. And the handwritten note says, Cantu locked in stolen suitcase, thrown in water on Bichetti Road and Whitehall Road, witness. And that's it. Oh, my God. Later on, prosecutors actually had the handwriting analyzed, of course, and it matched Huckabee's, although she attempted to disguise it. Um, So with the note, with the videotape, she gets arrested pretty quickly after the body is found, about four days after the body was found. So Huckabee was accused of poisoning Sandra and sexually assaulting her with a foreign object. And I remember hearing that come out in the news and I'm like, oh my God, she killed her and there was a sexual assault. And it just felt like such a one-off and was just, I was immediately interested in the story. And then of course, dumped her body in the irrigation pond. So she had... Most of the forensic evidence was at the church. So what they put together is that she probably drugged her, they say poison, but drugged her at the home and then drove her to the church. She, Sandra was strangled with a torn piece of cloth that had essentially just been knotted into a noose. Uh, The cause of death was homicidal asphyxiation. It's It's a fictional category. And the articles, so a lot of the details of the case, there was a gag order around it for a very, very long time. Um, I believe after sentencing, some of those details got released by the judge. And you can imagine just like injuries to a child and this, the nature of this crime, they don't want to put that out there. But so that the injuries, there were sexual, there was indication of sexual assault and the injuries they say were consistent with a rolling pin that was found at the church that Mm. had a bent handle. And so she, she did have injuries to her genital area. And then there were bloody smudges found inside the church. They also found a drug used to treat anxiety disorders in Cantu's body, as well as empty bottles at Huckabee's residence. So I'm assuming I'm putting together that this is what she used to poison her. Yeah. I mean, I would also be interested I've I've always interested in any kind of interaction and sort of intersection between what we're looking at and psychopharmacology and looking anytime my ears prick up anytime I hear about benzos being used in that way because benzos benzos are a class of drugs that are enormously overprescribed in this country. Benzos like uh, Xanax, Ativan, uh, there's a couple of they're basically anti-anxiety drugs and they are amazing in that they literally kind of act as a switch. Once they get into your system, they act as a switch to cut off all of the physiological processes that are causing anxiety. The problem is, is that it's, you're not fixing the problem. All you're doing is you're, you're backing up the faucet 
or you're backing up the drain. You know, you're not learning coping skills to deal with whatever horrible thing you're going through. So they're great for people with panic attacks that need them as one off. They're great for people with generalized anxiety that just have mm-hmm. anxious periods. They're not meant to be taken every day. And unfortunately, especially back then that long ago, because we've really only been looking at the dangers of, of benzos in the last like eight to nine years, looking at it seriously. And what's interesting is back in, back as early as like the seventies, like maybe late sixties, Europe was looking at how dangerous these drugs are because they cause in some people what we call a paradoxical effect. And a paradoxical effect is where the effect of a chemical substance or a food substance that's taken in mainly drugs we're talking about cause absolutely the opposite in some people of what they're meant to do. So in some cases where an anti-anxiety medication is meant to calm someone down, it can actually cause aggression, violence, excessive movement, talkativeness, crying, mood lability, impulsivity, high emphasis on the impulsivity, including what is called in some court cases as a rage response. So, yeah. So it's like, um, that paradoxical reaction is like when you see commercials for antidepressants and it says may cause suicide in adolescence. It's like, exactly. wait, there's suicidal ideation. You're like, wait, this is an antidepressant. What are right. you talking about? But it, yeah. it could depend on the age range of the person. What else um, they're putting in their system. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is they, I mean, I know she was supposedly a very religious person, but was there alcohol involved? How much of these benzos were, was she using on a regular basis? Was she trying to get off of them? You know, and it, it right. may not have anything to do with it, but it's one of those things that's supposed to be, th- that really should be looked at in any cases. And, and the one very, very famous case in Britain in, I think, 1978, a woman um, was acquitted of murder because her doctor had been overprescribing her benzos wow. for years. And during a withdrawal episode, she completely, she bludgeoned her husband to death in his sleep. Oh my gosh. And they're, they can be highly addictive as well, Oh, right? un- unbelievably addictive. And right. the withdrawal is so brutal, you can die from the withdrawal. Like many, right. many withdrawals are just incredibly painful, but you don't die from them. If you're addicted to benzos, you can have a massive seizure and just like die. Yeah, especially if it's cold turkey. Because yeah. I know I, I teach that in um, the jail academy that when you're asking questions about medical history, make sure your ears perk up if people talk about anti-anxiety meds because if they don't have their medication... You know, now you're thinking about, is this person going to have a medical concern we need to watch out for? Huge liability. Yeah. So with Melissa, um, actually, the sexual assault charge was dropped. So remember what I was saying about... Even with the insertion? That's so bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even with, you know, the prosecution... Um, I think it was part of the deal. So for her to avoid the death penalty, whatever. It it was... I don't have the exact uh, criteria or details of the the deal that was made because she did plea but the sexual assault charges dropped so there's you know there's a statistic right there that's not fully representative of the crime when you look at what somebody has been convicted of so again just kind of going back to statistics and how are we coding this stuff so prior to this crime against Sandra Melissa was involved in another incident with another little girl the just the January before where she disappeared for several hours with this girl, did eventually bring her home to her very worried parents. And the parents, rightly so, took her to an emergency room. And they actually did te- 
<laughs> they actually did toxology reports and and tests, and it revealed the presence of a benzodiazepine. Oh, so yeah. in her system, so that even more, you know, I, I just think about the pathology going on here. That was clearly a dry run, if not, you know, was going to end the same way just several months before here. So again, like, I don't think of this as necessary, you know, clearly there's a lot of mental health issues here and we're going to get in that into a moment, but you know, this, this wasn't just necessarily an impulsive situation with Sam. It doesn't seem like it. No. From the reporting her suitcase missing to, you know, maybe even having the rolling pin in her car or at the church or something like that and having this other incident with this other little girl. But, you know, what you've talked about in other episodes that you explained so well, it it starts to sound like one of those times you've talked about uh, crimes of opportunity. So she, there was some impulsivity, there was some kind of drive going on, but in these moments, it looks like she took advantage of the opportunity at that moment. Like, right. You can have, and there, there is in the, the research of, um, you know, homicide offenders that, you know, it can kind of be a hybrid where it's like the organized and the disorganized going on. Um, you can have elements of both of those things. So you're, you're absolutely right. Like, did she know Sandra was going to be skipping by at that time? Was it part of the plan or was she like, Oh, here she comes. Let me take advantage of this perfect opportunity. I've already got my suitcase out. Totally. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, she had also been arrested the previous year for a burglary and petty theft at a target store. And she was a person of interest in an arson investigation from 2007, where the home she resided in sustained deliberate fire damage on two separate occasions, which is just so weird and eerie. I actually rescued a man out of his own trailer park when he set it on fire, or not trailer park, his trailer one time. And I was like, oh my gosh, he he was so schizophrenic. (laughs) Um, Just a lot of mental health issues. But But did she... Did she have a suicide attempt? Yeah. Okay. So she just days before she was arrested. So remember, it took two weeks for them to find Sandra's body. And she probably brought that note to authorities in between there. But she did. She tried swallowing several razor blades. And they say that that was a suicide attempt, which is a... Very That's unique a, way. That is a very, yeah, unique is a good way to put it. You don't, you really don't hear about that as an attempt at all. Right. No, no. And she had already been in the system through, you know, their version in that county of mental health court stemming from the arrest at Target. So, you know, I wonder even when she was arrested from, from those or for those, if, they don't, they do not give us a diagnosis. We, we're not privy to that information. Transcripts did not reveal a diagnosis. But I wonder, did she have a suicide attempt when, you know, she was in jail being processed for that? Um, there had to be something where they said, okay, if she goes through mental health court, essentially she's a, a agreeing to like a year long program designed to keep the mentally like ill a out diversion. of jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, diversion. Like a diversion program. Um, basically, it, it's to avoid unemployment, to avoid, you know, further suicidal ideation. So there's elements of, you know, maybe a history of that. Um, 
And I mean, you don't you don't get to go to mental health court unless you have some kind of history. Right. I mean, it's right. I, I feel like the the research that we have we're privy to doesn't give us enough sort of verification of it. But I can tell you from the work that I do on a day to day basis, you don't go to mental health court unless there are significant mental health factors involved in, you know, the charges that you've been charged with. Right, right. Or your history. I mean, it could be something very simple, like a, a petty theft. But if your history is long and uh, robust, you know, right. you're, you're def- do that. Your defense is not going to be able to, to redirect it to mental health court unless they've got something to back that up. Because you can't just right. say, here's my client who has no history of mental health, but let's see if we can get him or her off on a diversion program by presenting right. it this way, you have to have a, a substantial background in order to do that. And so she was checking in at mental health court monthly because she was there a month before the murder and told her the social worker, whoever was appearing with her in court that I'm doing very, very well. She used very many times, which is always suspect to me. You just need one very <laughs> to emphasize it. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Uh, and she, they said, basically, we'll see you again next month. And she didn't appear for that court appearance. It actually fell a few days after Sandra was murdered. So in the court process for Sandra's murder, the judge did order a psyche eval. She was found competent to stand trial. Um, again, we didn't get any of the information about diagnoses. But she also, throughout th- this entire ordeal, she denied the sexual assault and denied that there was any injuries at all to Sandra and basically said um, in her statement that she made it sentencing, apologized to Sandra's parents and said she didn't suffer, which strangulation, as you and I have talked about, is an incredibly long um, process. However, I don't know if the child was unconscious because of the medication. So it's all very you know, interesting. We can just kind of put these pieces together, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, some of the, you were going to talk about typologies, right? Yeah. I mean, because that, I I want you to go further into that because the thing that I found that is related to it was talking about, and this goes back to 1997, um, uh, Salikin uh, is the researcher, Dr. Salikin, does a really kind of interesting sort of uh, offers a perspective talking about sort of our classic, what we used to call cluster B. And, you know, we, we kind of not really fairly characterize borderlines as very, as, as the most problematic because it's one of the more, it's, you know, it's in that cluster that's dramatic. Of personality disorders. Of personality disorders, right. But interestingly enough, they were saying of all the personality disorders that a borderline is less likely to be characterized, even though they are in black and white thinking, they they don't act out in this way. Whereas histrionic personalities that are sort of more seductive and desperately need attention, but not in the way that narcissistic personality does, mm-hmm. that the strongest correlation between female criminals is histrionic personality disorder versus other ones. I mean, I'm sure Interesting. I yeah, think no, there's some psychopathy in there as well. Clearly, sure. they were drilling down into the dramatic personality disorders rather than um, right. antisocial. Yeah. So, so there, let me be clear, there are not typologies for female sexual homicide offenders, clearly. I mean, we just have a tiny, teeny bit of research. Um, but I was going to just quickly go over typologies of female sex offenders because 
I think we can say with enough information that Sandra does fall into, you know, she may be a murderer, but she also falls into this category of a female sex offender. And again, there are tons of studies that have their own typologies presented. I always went with a really old study from 1989 by Matthews, Matthews, and Speltz, which I, I like another one, more recent one as well, but they have four categories. And one of those is psychologically disturbed, which is where I always sort of placed Sandra in my head. So traits of the psychologically disturbed female sex offender is someone who they found this group, they're, they have been severely abused themselves. Right. They're typically suffer from depression and a lot of so social isolation that comes with that depression, as well as a substance abuse history. Now that could even be prescription medication. Um, and they usually have a criminal history and can, there's, there were some in this category that scored high in psychopathy. So almost exactly what we're kind of inferring here. I think she fits best in this category. They had two, I'm sorry, three other categories. There was the predisposed molester is what they called it, which it's someone who offends alone against prepubescent children, significant histories, abuse themselves. This is sort of the caretaker, either, you know, mothers or Nannies, babysitters. Nurses, yeah. yeah, exactly. We have our ever famous teacher lover category, <laughs> Um, so they, they are seeking the adolescent victims to meet their needs and they're typically involved in dysfunctional adult relationships. So, well, that, um, and then building on that, uh, Hislop, who's another researcher in this area gives sort of builds on what you're talking about so that there's a really diffuse sense of boundaries, really poor relationships, relationship skills. Let me say that again, poor relationship skills, a real off sense of normalcy. Right. So like the idea of what, I mean, like what family relationships are supposed to look like or caregiver relationships are supposed to look like is mm -hmm. very different for this person coupled with, or on top of like a real significant lack of self-worth and then some real repressed sexuality. So sure. sexuality that's never been really explained, explored. Now, now I'm making a lot of leaps here, but you know, we're, we have been describing sort of highly religious home. So was this, I mean, this is pure conjecture folks, but like totally. I'm really drawn to was she experimenting with these children sexually right. in a way like I want to, you know, like just I'm uninhibited. I'm not fully emotionally or I'm not going to say intellectually because I don't know, but I'm not emotionally or psychically or psychologically developed. So I'm going to take someone who is less powerful than I am and I'm mm -hmm. going to experiment almost in the way a child would, but in a very dangerous adult way. Absolutely. And I, I think I, I really wish I had more information about her intellectual development as well, because it feels like a necessary part, doesn't it? It does. It feels very similar to male offenders who were intellectually delayed that offended in this impulsive way that, you know, when people have either severe mental illness or are intellectually delayed, they are not afforded sort of sexual development freedoms and milestones that the others, others have, are, yeah. you know, they, well, in, they don't know some, how to navigate it. Well, they don't, but the, the people around them also completely desexualize them 
in a lot of ways. And so they, they don't get the sort of natural coming of age type of opportunities, experiences that other people do. So I think, I think that's a really super interesting point that you bring up. Um, the last typology for Matthews, Matthews and Speltz is the male coerced female offender. So typically women that were very dependent and forced or abused into committing sexual crimes with a male partner against a common victim. In 2004, Van Diver and Kirscher proposed six typologies that they came up with after studying female sex offenders. So I'm just going to name them off. I'm not going to go through all of the criteria, but they came up with heterosexual nurturers, non-criminal homosexual offenders, female sexual predators, young adult child exploiters, homosexual criminals, and aggressive homosexual offenders. So it's very much, as you can hear, like related to um, their romantic or sexual relationship with their victim um, seems to be how they've sort of... Or perceived relationship, yeah. Or perceived, yeah, true. So... I, again, those typologies are all just female sex offenders, doesn't have to do with homicide, but it's an element of what we're talking about here. So, so shall we sort of jump into co-offending with men? Yeah, I think, um, well, we have a couple of examples. We have certainly a big one with a male, but we also have a female-female partnership as well. So once again, Going back to what you were saying at the beginning, this gets a little murky because we wanted to really drill down and separate and differentiate between those that are strictly sexually driven homicides. And it's really murky and hard to do that because especially when it's, you know, I think that in the case you just explored about Melissa Huckabee, that one seems incredibly specific, Um, except we want more information, right? We're like, oh, this is just not enough to really drill deep. Um, but a great example that has also a media representation, we've got several, but I want to start with what are called in England from the early 60s, the Moors murders. And this is a, a team, a, a couple, uh, Myra Henley and Ian Brady. And it's been made into a couple of different movies, uh, three movies, actually. I feel like the most interesting one, especially given our subject today, is called Longford. And it was with Jim Broadbent and Samantha Morton, who is an amazing actress. And I mean, I hope I'm not insulting her by saying this, but she's really good at playing creepy characters. She plays, <laughs> she was out Omega or she was in Walking Dead as remember oh. the Whisperers. She was the head of the Whisperers. I'm going to look um, her up right now. Yeah. And she was in uh, Minority Report. She's been around forever. She's really good at playing off characters. So interestingly enough, this movie Longford is about uh, a barrister parliamentarian uh, Longford played by Jim Broadbent and his relationship with Myra Henley while she was incarcerated for multiple murders that she committed with her boyfriend, husband, Ian Brady. Their crimes were against children. They um, sexually assaulted and brutalized children and then murdered them and dumped the bodies in the moors, the wilds of the sort of the area they were living in. Once again, this is an example where it hit all, you know, when they dig deep into Myra's background, she basically is hitting all of those markers of those bullet points that you and I were just mentioning. And on top of it, uh, there's an example that's that one of the forensic psychiatrists that evaluated her that felt was felt was really significant in her upbringing is that she was bullied on a schoolyard and ran home crying 
And because, you know, she had uh, been victimized and her father was completely non-sympathetic and he had taught her to fight and said, you go back there and you stick up for herself. And I think my dad did that one time. Well, <laughs> a little boy but, pushed me down and he was like, uh, go back across the street and I punched him in the face. So. Well, okay. In this case, which is different, Sorry. is her, her dad threatened to leather her, which was basically take a belt to her hind. Um, if she and didn't go if back she didn't and go back. stick up so, for herself. So Ooh. here she is. She's caught between terror and terror and she went back and basically just beat the living crap out of the kid um badly really really badly um you know just punched him over and over again and um so there was indication that there was physical and sexual abuse that was perpetrated by her father when she was growing up and one of the things that made this sort of a, a real change in the way we looked at forensic psychology and women and perpetrators at that time which is the 60s is it was the wild frontier nobody really knew what to do with this stuff that was all just sort of emerging. And it was at a time during the sexual revolution and women mm-hmm. were being looked at differently, but still were, were caught in these systems of perception. What people forget is that for England at that time in the rural areas, this was just, you couldn't wrap your mind around it. Like it was the idea that you watched Coronation Street or you watched Doctor Who or Top of the Pops you know, you watch the telly, you listen to radio, you were a proper English person. The sure. idea that that a couple was doing something so horrible and monstrous, really people just couldn't wrap their, their minds around it. I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around today. It is. And we consume all of this stuff. And these Absolutely. people were horrific. So in, in Myra's case, which is very interesting, uh, she had requested a couple of times to be able to meet Ian Bradley, who was also, you know, he had been convicted of these murders. And over the years, they both confessed to additional killings that led to, you know, attempts like where they would escort her to the moors so that she could possibly help locate the bodies. And she did this. um, She said that she did this at the request of one of the mothers of one of the victims. And this was a big case, like when she came up for parole over and over again, one of the families, one, an entire family, mother, brother, uncle, cousin, all stated, if she's released, we will kill her. They were just Whoa. basically saying in court, if she gets out, the, the mother of the little girl that was murdered is like, I will kill her. I will kill her myself, which is a big deal. I mean, we, we kind of hear about those kind of things every once in a while, but you don't hear them like basically going up to a reporter and saying, if she gets out, I will kill her. So it was a, a very big deal. But in the interviews um, that the psychiatrist did, they just basically said that this was someone who was not what the public wanted to portray her as, which is lonely, a victim, someone that was malleable and just sort of molding her personality to someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that's important too, that made this so difficult, and I think people not wanting to talk about it, were the sexual elements of the crimes. And the sexual elements of the crimes is that um, all of the children, male and female, were sexually assaulted or raped by Ian and likely Myra as well. In the course of the trial, she denied it. She like talked around it all the time. And there's a great scene actually in the movie where 
um, Jim Broadbent's Longford character goes and talks to Ian to kind of try and corroborate or get an idea of what's going on with Myra. And Ian Broad, um, Ian goes, Ian Brady goes, look, I'm bad, but she's a monster. And she did everything that I did. She was involved in all of it. And Longford has a real hard time kind of, I mean, because he's the guy that fights against lifetime imprisonment. He was always trying to advocate for reformed, reformed, quote unquote, criminals to get out. And then the thing that turns it around, which is one of the sort of high points of the movie and was a high point of really their trials, was listening to the tapes of the children being assaulted, raped, and dying. They made recordings of it. They That's purposely a whole made, level of psychopathy. Exactly. So they recorded it, and they also took multiple pictures, which later became part of the evidentiary process as well. So it was clear that even though Myra was presenting well and certainly presenting as reformed to Longford, she had participated equally and in some cases, as per Ian, had driven it, had come up with the ideas of let's, this is how we do it. This is how I can get the little girl to come into my car and I'll tell her we have to go look for a glove I lost on the moor. Yeah, I'm sorry. Nobody reforms from that type of... Well, I, I think that's important to say. I mean, we we really kind of hedge around some kind of those things yeah. because because we do want to think that people can reform and not. That's not to say that murderers can't be reformed. There are really there are different typologies of, of murders that seriously can can understand what they've done and take responsibility. Sure, but this is nowhere in that universe at all. You know, this dynamic is is probably one of the most fascinating to me when we talk about any co murderers, especially when it's sadistic, especially when there's a sexual element to it, is, you know, what perfect storm of factors had to be lined up that these people found each other and, you know, engaged in this behavior because, you know, you definitely see this as such a one-off just by low numbers um, and that people would never want to even share the fantasy or something like that. Um, But, you know, whether it's this couple or it's the hillside stranglers or, you know, just is, is there, is it just like what I said, like there's the stars align and these two horrible people find each other Well, or is there more of this gradual bringing one of them into your world? I think it's, I think it's a little of both, but it's more about recognizing kinship a to- recognizing a toxic level of kinship or recognizing, I mean, most psychopaths have, or people with severe personality disorders have a chronic, prolonged, and unrelenting sense of emptiness mm-hmm. that can never be filled. And so they mm-hmm. fill it with all sorts of other things, whether it is criminality or sex or uh, self-victimization or self-harm. There's all sorts of ways they try and fill that void. Sure. And I, I really do believe that like, you know, this is such, such a weird way to say it. It's about finding sort of a soulmate. And we recognize those things in people in the same way that like your gut tells you like, uh, I don't want to be friends with um, <laughs> little Melissa over here because she's got some weird habits. And I just got a, a vibe from her. Yeah. Well, in that same way, Ian and Myra found each other. I mean, there's a lot of background information online. It's a fascinating case um, that's in Crime Library, if anybody wants to read about it or watch Longford. Um, Also, uh, 
Andy Serkis, who's been in every wonderful movie, just always plays a default character himself, plays Ian Brady, and he's chilling mm-hmm. in this as well. But I think that given that it's like two people may be two ships passing in the night, but they just get a vibe off each other. And sure. then what you're talking about is then they start taking off. And then they stimulate each other in those ways of, and look at it, like we've talked about this before, psychopaths have a limited ability to actually experience the full spectrum of emotions. So if we find each other and we're psychopaths, we can we can poke at those edges of the nerve cells in our brain that will give us some simulation of love or passion. It's just of a connection of a connection. Exactly. That's much better. Horrific connection. Yeah. Terrible connection. So that's an example. I I mean, I, we could spend an entire episode talking about that, but the recordings horrified Longford. And that was the, the, the thing that turned him away from it. She died in prison. Ian Brady died in prison. Um, some of the bodies were never found, but they did they did admit to several unsolved child murders very early on in their in their incarceration. You know, there's there's a couple of other examples that we talk about that are are big ones, but they're going back to some of the historical ones we've talked about in the past. Like, if I don't go back too far, and I know this is one that always pisses you off because you never want to spend too much time on Carla Homolka because. <laughs> everything's been done on her, right? There's been so much, but Carla Homolka was, she and her uh, husband in Canada in, what was this, the 80s or early 90s? Yeah. It was the 80s because she had a big puffy wedding dress, I remember. Yes, right, and hair Um, to match. Yeah, they engaged in like really dangerous sex play, drugging Carla's younger sister to the and sexually assaulting her to the point where she died as a result of they had overdrugged her. And they also perpetrated this on other victims as well. And Ooh, 1990 and 19, to 1992. Oh, okay. Good research there. It's Canada. Uh, Maybe they're a little <laughs> bit behind in their fashion in be. there. <laughs> that's what, uh, yeah, that's what they do when uh, Robin sparkles on How I Met Your Mother. Uh, so anyway, that is another example of like there throughout that. I mean, certainly there's a pure psychopathy in her. Like every every interviewer that, that interviewed her found her to be just completely devoid of a real sense of personality. You know, she was always adapting herself as best she could to whatever audience was around her. And when she met her husband, once again, it was this really toxic mix. Theirs were were sexually oriented. And there was, again, controversy about whether or not she was just helping or whether or not she was engaging in these crimes. And it was pretty clear right. that she was engaged in, in three ways or, you know, multiple sex partners with these women that they had uh, drugged. You know, it's interesting when we kind of just circling back to the typologies of female sex offenders, the, the category of being a co-offender with a male is, is the largest typology. Right. Most of them fall into that category. Um, but the reoffense rates for those women are very, very low. It's like between one to 2%. So, the relationship has to be in the influence has to be an important factor for the majority of them. Like maybe not a Carla Homolka, but it, it speaks to, you know, you look at recidivism of male sex offenders and it, it hovers around 15% depending on the type of crime, but female offenders are of the lowest, you know, one of the lowest when they're teamed but up with a male. Once again, we're, we're, 
lacking enough information to find out why. Why is sure. it that they were is it is it that they're not any less psychopathic, but they are able just because they are women to understand maybe they understand consequences. Maybe they contain maybe. themselves more. Maybe they have to contain themselves more than men do. Maybe they are reoffending and it's not being reported. Uh, I don't good know. point. I would hate that to happen, but that's a possibility. Um, there's another example, Rosemary West in England. Um, this is a, a woman who murdered her oldest daughter and others in conjunction um, with her husband. She and her husband killed their own kids. They um, sexually assaulted their children and other people. Um, other Jesus. victims. Now, interestingly enough, both of them had a horrible history. They were both uh, arrested for sexual assault way before they ever started having kids. It's just uh-huh. amazing. Like after that, yeah. you're allowed to have kids. That's immediately wow. concerning. <laughs> yeah. So another one we talked about briefly in our Angel of Death episode, Jane Toppin, who was Jolly Jane. And right. she was one of these angels of death type murdering uh, murderers. And what's fascinating too is this is what's frustrating is the difference in the way the stuff is written. So if I look at the oldest articles about her, there's a male psychologist who's writing about um, Jolly Jane and saying that there's absolutely no connection to sexuality with her murders, that it was all about sort of the nurturer being the hero alleviating people of their pain and then more interesting information came after that kind of like it was came immediately after her arrest in the newspaper but then wasn't brought up so much historically is that she would fondle her victims right um as they like crawl in bed with them right right right. and she would um like gaze in their eyes so that she could witness their soul leaving their body as she had um, administered really high amounts of drugs to them. And she even said that she does, she got a sexual thrill mm-hmm. around, about around being patients near their death. So yeah, that so again, further, that's a further drill down. That's another subcategory in angels of death, but because there's that sexual element, which is not generally the angel of death typology at all. And we do see a lot of times with sex offenders in general that there is this misinterpretation of emotional intimacy and sexual intimacy and being expressed and fulfilled in inappropriate ways. And I could see that being, you know, her, you know, part of her pathology. Absolutely. Um, It might not be what we think of when we think of a male sexual killer like sexual sadist, but there's a sexual element there. So again, coming back to definition. And a a control issue. So maybe if we're not Uh going to go so far into sadism, but there's certainly control. I'm going to be the one that controls when and how you die. You're completely within my, my power and I'm going to witness it. And I'm going to, I'm going to interpret that as an intimate or a sexually intimate moment. Mm -hmm. Now going and going back to another co-offending example, but co-offending between women was the, um, the case regarding Gwendolyn Graham and Catherine Wood. And these two were employees at a Michigan nursing home. And they had become gotten into an affair with each other. I think that they didn't initially identify as lesbian, but, you know, sort of developed this really intense relationship that then turned into a sexual relationship. And then they just wanted to find a way, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, a way to make their sex more intense. And so what do you think they go to? 
the patients. Let's let's kill somebody. Let's, oh, <laughs> yeah. Let let's. Um, so they were. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah, they I would were, say they were practicing um, sexual asphyxia on each other, which was basically strangling each other uh-huh. to the point of passing out. Which can, um, you know, if, and if someone's engaging in that behavior by themselves, like with a noose or a belt or something, it's called autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, but they were been doing this to each other, and they felt like they still needed to up the ante. So the upping the ante was killing patients, and um, they would in, uh, identify really vulnerable patients. And the way they wanted to make it more cryptic was they would use the initials of their victims to slowly spell out murder as if there was some, some weird Agatha Christie novel or something. So clearly not incredibly smart, like, mm-hmm. like the idea of not, fig- not kind of taking into your consciousness that somebody's going to figure this shit out. You know, it's going to come right. back to you. So they would pick victims with names that M U R like that, like right. spelling out murder. They were trying to spell out murder and they would get so excited. Um, like within three months, they had killed five residents and they would get so excited after killing the person that they would run into one of the broom closets and have sex. Wow. Killer nurses part two. Yeah. Jeez. Sexual killer nurses. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Next time you go in the hospital, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. (laughs) Right. I never thought I'd ask for a male nurse instead of a female nurse, but... (laughs) Yikes. I don't know. That's a whole thing too. I will say this. This is a lot of information that we, you know, we're, we're talking about something that we could turn into five or six different episodes. The, the stuff that I found for research, you guys is so fascinating. I'm going to be putting up a bunch of the articles and links on the Facebook page as soon as we drop this episode. Mm -hmm. And of course it'll always be in our show notes. Read these articles. They're really fascinating. fascinating stuff. Yeah. So I think, you know, I sit back after I did my research on this. I'm like, what do we have here? And is it that female, or do we have female sex offenders who sometimes also kill their victims for some reason or another? Or are some homicides committed by women actually sexually motivated? And I'm you know, leaning I, more towards the latter. Are you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, and maybe that's my internalized patriarchy. I mean, I got to check myself on that too. I don't think so. But I don't, but I don't know. I'm just like, it just, the first one, it seems like there's a progression from one in the, in the latter than there is the former. Well, and I, I think it comes back to definition, right? Do we, I sort of feel that a, the definition of a, a, sexual homicide offender means that there's, again, a sexual intent, a sexual motivation behind it, whether, you know, strangling this person and seeing the life drain out of their eyes is sexually arousing um, rather than, you know, like I was talking about before, is there some sort of sexual activity and then a murder occurs. So, you know, I think the more tightly the, the sexual element is entwined in the motivation for me that feels like what we're talking about here yeah, or what it should be that makes sense yeah so i i totally see what you're saying but um you know i again it just goes back to needing more research and comparing all of these groups together yeah you um you know with the at the top you were talking about this would be a great um dissertation topic and it's so my uh, 
a lot of commonality with most people that are finishing their dissertations. It's, it was not a pleasant experience. It was a milestone in my life and it was a milestone of accomplishment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard, especially if you're doing a program where you actually have to do research rather than, I mean, I'm not saying one is, is that much easier, but you could do one where you're just basically a review of the literature and kind sure. of making some, some schools allow that. Yeah. Some schools will allow that. Ours really did not allow that. Ours, you know, we were held to a really, really strict standard. And like, if I had to do it now, knowing what I know and knowing how to research and also knowing about the extensions on Google Chrome. <laughs> well, would be, did those uh, exist back then? <laughs> they didn't. They, this, the, the, certainly the citation thing did not exist at that right. time. It would have been, it would have been life-changing. It would have been absolutely life-changing. Yeah. I mean, and they save like your dissertation is not your life's work. Just pick something, get it done, get out of school and then. And get on with your career. And then you. Yeah. All and that. Exactly. And, um, you know, that's why our dissertations don't necessarily match what we go on to do in work or what our passions are for researching. And, and there's time for that later on. So, um, again, like you can be a, a psychologist or criminologist that is a researcher and you can drill down and like Dr. Chan in Hong Kong, and just, this is where you're going to start. It sucks because you're, you're so excited as a a student you want to like dive into something that's amazing and so interesting and impactful. And, um, it's like, well, you'll have time for that later. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just get it done. Cool. All right. Are we done? I think we're done for this week. Cool. Sounds good. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited to release this episode. I think it is kind of getting back to, you know, people scroll through different topics they want to look at. I think it'll be one that they stop at (laughs) for sure. Um, I hope it's not a disappointment that we're sort of unresolved. Like we said, the research is just scratching the surface, but it's all so interesting. And of course, as always, we brought up a million more things to think about. It's never as clear cut as you think it's going to be when you're listening to something and taking in all the pathology and psychological aspects to it. So, so yeah, catch us on Get Vocal this Saturday and um, hit us up with some questions about this episode and we can keep it going. Yes, I can't wait. Um, Get Vocal has been a lot of fun. It seems like our numbers are growing every time. Um, and then the replays online are really cool. So please see, join us on social media. Please join us on our Facebook page. We have some great yeah. conversations there. It's a lot of fun. Uh, check out our website. We've got a couple of pieces of merch, more coming. And um, Indeed, get your challenge coins, guys. Right. We are probably our next episode. We've got a little bit of surprise. We don't do these very much, but we're going to try and um, catch up on our listener questions because we have not done one in months and we've got an inbox full of questions that we will uh, touch on. So if you send us an email with a question, make sure to tune in. We won't yes. identify. We won't, we will just use initials. So don't worry about anything personal getting out, of course. but we'll do some, um, we'll answer some of those questions for you and we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye folks. Stay Take safe. Take care. Be safe. Bye.